title of the talk today that I've given, a little bit different to the, the one that was on the screen, is Waiting, Watching, and Working for Jesus. Waiting, Watching, and Working for Jesus. The passage that John read to us, in some ways, is one that maybe takes us a little bit of time to kind of fully get our heads around, because actually there are three short stories woven together and told really quickly in this. And we're going to dive in in just a minute or two to each of those three short stories. But I want you to get a sense of the overall themes of what Jesus is actually communicating to us. If you do have your Bible, either in paper version or on phone, it'd be great if you could look with me to look chapter 12, verse 35 to 48. Stick with me. Make sure that I'm not going off piece at any point um, because it's God's word and it's God's voice that we need to hear today um, as we open up his word and try and really think about what he has to say for us. So the first thing that jumps out for me as I look at this is two words that are repeated time and time and time again. And I'm using the, the, the newer version of the NIV here. And I find in this passage that 11 times over, I hear the word or I read the word servants or service. Okay, let's just, let's just rattle through some of them. Verse 35, we have to be ready for service. We have to be like servants waiting for their master to return. Verse 37, it'll be good for servants whose master finds them watching. And as we go on, um, he will dress himself to serve. Verse 38, it'll be good to set for servants whose master finds them ready. Verse 42, um, who is the faithful and wise mas- manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants? Verse 43, It'll be good for the servant whom the master finds doings, and so on and so on. Lots and lots of references, a living in all, to being servants. And then the other word that we see running right through this, stick with me, is the word master. Let's look out for that, okay? So verse 38, waiting for their master. Verse 37, good for the servants whose master finds them uh, watching. Verse 38, good for the servants whose master finds them ready. Um, and uh, verse 46, the master of the servant will come on a day when he's not expected. Verse 47, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master once will be beaten with many blows, it says in this version. So stories told in different ways with slightly different twists in them, all trying to make absolutely clear. Remember, this is Jesus teaching. Uh, There's a crowd around, but he appears to be focused largely on his disciples. And he's talking to them about the master and the servant relationship. He's using these stories, I think, to emphasize to them that his followers should see themselves as servants and should see him as the master. And the other theme that keeps running through the stories is the idea of the master going away, but the master's sure and certain return, albeit no one knows when that return will be. Now, this raises uh, quite a number of questions in my mind as I look at these stories. And some of the questions in my mind are simply not addressed in this passage at all. And I want to just mention two of the questions that are not answered here, which I think are quite important for our understanding of what is actually talked about and explained here. So, so as I think of these stories of the, of the master and the servant, I wonder, why does the master go away? It's a common theme in all of them. The master tasks his servants with things, but then leaves them. 
Big subject. Why does the master go away? For me, that I then think, so, so if Jesus is the master and we are his servants, why does he leave? Why is he not here physically present with us as he once was? And for that, I turn to John 14, another gospel for some answers where Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. So why is he going away? He is going away in order to prepare a place for us. And the words that I'd really like you to uh, bear in mind today are these words that he said in John 14, I will come back. I hope for many of us, these words might bring comfort. I hope for some of us, they might bring real challenge. They've certainly challenged me as I've reflected on them. I will come back. They could hardly be simpler words, could they? They could hardly be clearer words. And yet it's also a theme threaded through our passage. The master who goes away is the master who says, I will come back. Another question I have Why do the servants have no idea as to when the master is returning? It's another theme that runs through. No idea. Why is that? The answer is not really given here. But for for that question and that answer, I turn to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 8 to 10, where I read this. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And I could look to so many verses of scripture, which contain what for many of us is sometimes, at sometimes difficult and at times confusing teaching about what the return of Jesus will actually look like. But I want us to hold on to some certainties today as taught in the Bible. Number one, as we've learned, Jesus saying, I will come back. Number two, the reason why he's not yet returned back, the reason why the servants don't know when he's returning back is because of the patience of God. Is because God is patient and loving and wants everyone to have a chance to come to know him. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That verse is one which I encourage you to hang on to, to find real comfort in. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 10, alongside that incredible teaching that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. Think of all of this through God's perspective. A day like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So I think then if those are some of the unanswered questions, one of the key questions that are answered in this passage or that is answered is this question. What should the servants do while the master's away? Okay, we don't know when he's coming back. We're absolutely certain he will come back at some point. But what should we do while he's away? Now, you notice, I think the thrust of this passage is teaching for those who are already in a relationship with a master. Okay, so I'm going to be focusing largely in my comments over the next few minutes uh, on those of us who would already say, yes, we're signed up to follow Jesus. Jesus. 
Yes, we've experienced what it is um, to know Jesus as our as our saviour. And so we are in that relationship with him. Um, but there is, of course, plenty of other teaching in scripture and indeed relevance in this passage for some who might be here today who would acknowledge, perhaps, or think that it's possible that there's you've got no relationship at all with Jesus. And when you hear this business already of Jesus coming back and of us not knowing when because God is patient and wants us all to have a chance to repent, then I wonder what how that impacts on your heart and, and, and your life. And I trust that for all of us, we would have a desire today to be ready for when Jesus does come back. And I trust that we might also recognize that that could be even today. One of the songs that I... Uh, really enjoyed and was challenged by as I was growing up was the Larry Norman song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Can I test the room? Do some of you know this song? I'm not seeing much recognition. Margot does, which is great. Margot and I must have some similar music tastes. Man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Really challenging, uh, solemn words in that song. I will come back. But I have to say my own experience of my own journey to faith and to knowing Jesus was not one where, uh, st- where scare stories had any impact on me at all. And that is not what I want to bring today. Rather, I think this passage encourages us to think of what it looks like for us, his followers, to be waiting for the return of Jesus, our Lord and Master. So let's look at the the, the stories in a little bit more detail. Verse 36, let's get into this one. Uh, Servants are waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. And it's quite clear that these servants have got no idea at all when he will return. Um, He might be returning in the middle of the night, or they might have to wait until almost daybreak before the servant, uh, before the master actually returns. But despite this, what should they do? Well, um, they should, their, the lamps should be kept burning. The master should not be coming back to find the house in pitch darkness. He should not be coming back to find that the doors are locked, the windows have been shut, and the servants are fast asleep in their beds. The master is expecting a sense of anticipation, a sense of readiness for his return. Now, as I was beginning to prepare this, I thought, you know, we don't really have that master-servant relationship so much today. And then I thought, how silly am I? Of course we have it, and I am one of the servants. Um, perhaps along with some of the others, I am, I know certainly some of you have had a career in the civil service. Uh, some of you, like me, live our whole working lives merely to serve. We don't live our lives to to be in control or to pursue our own agenda, uh, but to, in my case, to be serving the ministers of the government of the day, whoever they may be, whatever their policies might be, my role is to help and support and serve them as they seek to implement their policies. But of course, there's lots of different jobs in the civil service, and the one that really comes to mind as I was reading this passage about people awaiting the master's return was the job in private office in the civil service. It's a job that Aileen, uh, John Gemmell's pastor, used to have. And in private office, the key thing that you have to do is ensure that the every need of your minister is attended to. 
In particular, they must know where they are going, when they are going to go there. They must have clear and proper material about exactly what they must do and say when they are going to wherever they are meant to go. And the key thing about being in private offices, you have no idea what your working hours will be. No idea. Because you are a servant there to serve the minister. So if the minister goes to an event and it goes on a bit because there are um, engagements or conversations or things to happen, do you think for a minute that the civil servant says, well, sorry, it's quarter to five, I'm away home? Not at all. They won't survive in private office for a week if that was their mentality. Contrary to those of you who think in the civil service, we only work from 10 till four. It's not true. The servant will simply be there waiting, waiting for the minister to finish their business, whatever it might be, whatever the time of the day or night. And when the minister is finished, we'll be there to continue to serve them. Where do we go to now? What can I pick up from that meeting that you'd like me to do? Um, Are there any particular action points that need followed up now, even though it might be late at night? That's fine. Here, happy to serve. But isn't it strange in this passage, there's a twist. Did you notice the twist? It's not the case that the master returns and says to the servants, the good servants, well, thanks for waiting up. Right, where's my three-course meal? Despite the time of the day or night. That doesn't happen. What does the master do here? The master comes, stay with me to make sure that I'm not, um, that, that I'm, that I'm, that, I, that what I'm saying is true here. It says, verse 37, it'll be good for the servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly I tell you, he'll dress them, he, the master, will dress himself to serve, will make them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. This is an amazing twist. This is a twist where the master, the one who is in charge, chooses to become the servant. Does it remind you of anything? Does it remind you of the great God uh, and the great Lord whom we have been worshipping, who humbled himself, who despite being Lord of all, took on himself the nature of a servant and was made in human likeness. Does it remind you of the one who when with his disciples, when they were all standing on ceremony and thinking, well, we're all too important to wash one another's dirty feet. Does it remind you of the one who would take the towel? The one who would kneel at the feet of his disciples. He who was Lord of all would be the one who would come in front of them and serve. This is a wonderful master whom these servants um, are actually uh, tasked with serving. Not one who will manipulate, not one who will use or misuse his power, but one who, despite being the master, is also the one who will return and who will serve. I trust we can be encouraged by the opportunities that we have to serve a master like this. But the key point from here clearly is that we should be watching and waiting for the master's return, even though we have no idea when he will be returning. And I wonder if some of us have assumed that that return will never happen. Been so long. Nothing's changed. It's never going to happen in our lifetime. Maybe some of us think it will never happen at all. In which case we need to go on to the second story because the second story has got particular resonance for us if that's where we're at. It's there in verse 39. It's such a short story you could almost miss it. But it is a different story because here it says if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. You must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour where you do not expect him. You must be ready for the Son of Man will come at an hour 
where you do not expect him. Can I illustrate this point here, please, by telling you about the puppy that has come into the lives of the Johnston family in the last few months and is probably actually on the cusp of becoming a full-grown dog. The one thing I have learned about our puppy, Harris, is that he loves it when we come home. And I don't know really what he does for the hours and hours and hours that we sometimes leave him on his own. But what I do know is that nine times out of ten, as we drive into our driveway and look at the uh, small panes of glass either side of our door, he's there. He's there poised, waiting. For all I know, he has potentially been there looking out the window, waiting for the preceding four or five hours. He's possibly there now, spare a thought for him. Just waiting, patiently. And how does he react when we come? He's got no idea when we come. But no matter when we come, he's there leaping, bounding, jumping up, showing his absolute joy and delight that we have returned. And I'm challenged as I look at this and I hear this second story from Jesus. I'm challenged about whether I've got that real desire for the Son of Man to return. And am I ready? Or have I got so many things that I want to do in my life that in some ways I see as more important than the return of Jesus Christ, who we've been singing as Lord of all. That's the second story. But I have to say the third story is really important because there the analogy of my little dog breaks down entirely, right? Because the reality is Harris, while he's waiting for our return, is doing absolutely nothing, right? He is just sitting there, maybe sleeping. And I wonder if some of us, and I think um, as we look at the book of First Thessalonians, we see that some of the early Christians thought that what they should do while they waited for Jesus' return was nothing. Right? Jesus is coming back. So I suppose we need to make sure we keep ourselves pure and we keep ourselves clean um, and we make sure we're ready. But actually what we do, well, doesn't really matter what we do. So let's give up our job. Uh, let's sell up our house. Let's make sure we basically gather together in a little huddle and just hope that he comes back soon. Is that what the Bible teaches us to do? Absolutely not. Let's look at the third story. The third, if the first two stories tell us about waiting and watching for Jesus' return, the third story speaks to us about working while we await Jesus' return. Because in this story, what we see is that the master has tasked the servant with work to do. He said, listen, I'm going to give you a a real responsibility while you're here uh, waiting for my return. And so I'm going to ask you to look after some of the other servants in my household. And I want you to give them uh, their food at the proper time and, uh, you know, manage the affairs of my house. And we read in verse 43 that it's going to be good for the servant who understands what he needs to do and sets his mind to it and does it with all of his heart and soul. And that servant is going to get an even greater reward. Verse 45, we've got an example of someone who also knows what he needs to do. He's been given work to do while he awaits the master return. And what does he decide to do? He becomes lazy. He says, oh, my master's taking such a long time to return. And so he starts to beat the other servants, both men and women. He eats and drinks and he gets drunk. And that person comes back and faces what is a pretty gory punishment, as you'll read about in that passage. I find this a hugely challenging um, story and it makes me think about the sort of work that Jesus, our master, might want us to do 
while we await his return. What were the characteristics of the terrible servant in that story? What were the characteristics? He wasn't marked by a care or a love for those that were in the household. Rather the reverse. He was abusive. He was selfish. He was lazy. What were the characteristics of the servant who was uh, rewarded? He was one who was working diligently while he awaited the master's return. Look at verse 47, 48, which I think uh, talks to us about the importance of knowing what it is the master wants to do. So in verse 47, the servant who knows what the master wants to do will need to do it. Verse 48 recognizes that some of us might be a little bit unsure about what the master actually wants to do. And there there'll be greater leniency. Verse 48 um, reminds us that from those to whom much has been given, much will be demanded. And I think we can probably pause today and look at our own life and circumstance and recognize that much, much has been given to all of us. We've been given time and energy. We've been given an assurance through Jesus that we're loved, we're valued. We've been brought into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We know our sins are forgiven. We know the Holy Spirit lives in us. We've been given much. We have great hope for the future. And now I do feel that the challenge of this passage is that just as faith without works is described by James as dead, so simply receiving all of that from God and responding by doing nothing with it and by sheer laziness and idleness is perhaps the very scenario that we need to feel challenged about. How does God want us to work? Well, I'm going to invite one of our church members, Robert, to come and tell us a little bit about his experience of uh, work. And uh, Robert, I am now realizing that the questions that you and I had discussed in advance, I do not have in front of me here, which I'm really sorry. So uh, Robert, stick with us. I think the uh, first one was probably just to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and maybe your journey to get to um, what you're doing. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Robert. For those of you that don't know me, I'm a GP, a family doctor. Uh, I work uh, down in Peebles, a, a small town about 20 miles south of here. Uh, and I've done that for the last four years. Prior to that, I was doing various uh, training jobs in uh, hospitals and so on. And before that, medical school. I was relatively late in going back to, to medical school. Uh, I was 26 when I went back to study. Uh, prior to that, I had studied engineering and was on a completely different course in life. And uh, really... Uh, came to be aware in quite a profound way that that's not what God wanted me to do. Uh, I had a good job and I enjoyed working there uh, where, where I was, uh, but I came to gradually, gradually realise it was something else in life for me. So it was actually quite a big step for me to go back to uh, to, to study at that age. Uh, suddenly I had no money and all sorts of issues around about where to live and so on. And, and God really provided uh, along the way and probably the most notable thing is that if you ever find yourself in that situation, uh, you're maybe not sure that this is where you're meant to be just now. Certainly my experience was that God, in a very real way, uh, can speak and change that. And it's, I think, important to be aware of that potential and to really be still and listen to God because I had enormous blessing, uh, although I took what was actually quite a, a tricky decision at the time to, to change direction, uh, I was enormously blessed for doing so. So, Robert, you've got this real sense that w the work you're doing now is the work that God 
wants you to do, which I think is tremendous, which kind of takes us on then to just really keen to hear a little bit about how, how does that conviction make a difference? Well, uh, so in my job, I see all sorts of people from the beginning of life to the end of life and all the challenges that go along the way. Uh, and that in itself can be a, a difficult thing. Uh, it, it can take its toll on your own health, uh, you know, just the, the sort of stresses and strains of that, as many jobs can do. Uh, but So it's a real reassurance to know that this is what God wants me to do. You know, it, it could be quite discouraging at times. Uh, people talk about burnout uh, in various different jobs, and uh, it's something to be aware of. But no, it really gives me a reassurance. And I, I suppose uh, my job in, enables me to practically apply a lot of the teaching uh, in the Bible uh, about praying for people and for uh, looking after people when they're struggling in life. And uh, so, so that's a joy, really, to be able to do that. In terms of my own well-being, the Bible really provides uh, a lot of support and guidance on that as well. Uh, the passage I was going to mention here is in Philippians 4 and uh, verse 6, where it says, don't be anxious uh, in every situation. Every situation, present uh, your petitions to God in prayer and uh, God will give you the peace that passes understanding. It's this peace that, that's beyond what we're able to understand and that is a real strength uh, and a real encouragement to me and, and as it should be to everyone that's there and it's a very real thing. Robert, thanks so much. Was there anything else that you wanted to add about this? Namely, any other questions I've forgotten? Right, excellent. Thanks so much, Robert. It's great to hear a little bit about what work looks like for you. And just before um, I finish up here, could I, um, I just hope some of you might be genuinely uh, encouraged to think much, perhaps more deeply, about what it means to be a Christian in the workplace. Or what does it mean as a Christian to be seeking to do good work? If you're maybe not in an employment situation, what does it mean to be doing good work uh, day in, day out? If so, I've got a book to recommend for you. It's this book by a guy called Matt Perman, uh, What's Best Next? Subtitled, How the Gospel Transforms the Way You Get Things Done. So it's not primarily a book about just being uh, more super efficient. There's a little bit there. But it's a book that fundamentally says... That as people who recognize ourselves as servants of God in what we do, as people with a real purpose in our everyday situation, we have unlimited opportunities to do good works. That's what the servant in our passage who was commended did. He did good works. He sought to love and serve others. And the servant in our passage who was punished was one who was selfish and only looked out for himself. And I love this little section from the book which says this. When you're answering emails, you aren't just answering emails. You're doing good works. When you attend meetings, you aren't just attending meetings. You're doing good works. When you make supper for your family, you aren't just making supper for your family. You're doing good works. When you put the kids to bed, you aren't just putting the kids to bed, you are doing a good work. And he goes on to talk about a life of serving God as a life of joy, adventure, and excitement. Far more exciting, in fact, than a life lived for yourself, no matter how many times you might get to travel the world. So our time is nearly up and I want to hand back to Andrew to close us with two great songs that I think will allow us to focus our minds on that certainty of Jesus' return. But as we close, 
Let me be very clear about one thing. Despite what we've talked about in the last few minutes about the need for those servants not only to be watching and waiting, but also working, let's be very clear that being in that relationship with Jesus in the first place um, is what this all hinges on. I'm not suggesting for a minute that by simply working our socks off and trying to do good, uh, we will thereby be ready for the return of the master. Not at all. Uh, but rather, those of us who have had that encounter with Jesus Christ are now encouraged to be people who will watch, who will wait, and who will work. Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the confidence that we have that you will return. Help us to anticipate that more today. Help us to watch, help us to wait, and help us to do exactly what you would call us to do in service of you as we await your return. Amen.